You're listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, Stories from Sydney Lunar Festival, a podcast about Australians who celebrate Lunar New Year, from artists and fashion designers to board directors and, in this episode, brain surgeons. I'm Valerie Koo, and I'm the City of Sydney's curator of the Sydney Lunar Festival. I'm also an artist, writer and CEO of the Australian Writers' Centre. In this series, we discover the personalities and passions of people who meld their cultural traditions with this sunburned country they call home. I'm talking to Professor Charlie Teo, who is well known to many Australians for his work as a neurosurgeon. In particular, he's known for operating on brain tumours in children and adults, where in some cases those tumours have been considered inoperable. He's the only Australian neurosurgeon to be board certified in both Australia and the US, was appointed a member of the Order of Australia, has also been named the most trusted person in Australia for the last five consecutive years. In 2017, he founded the Charlie Teo Foundation, which raises awareness and funds the front lines of brain cancer research, with a focus on Australian research, clinical trials and patients. Okay, so Dr. Charlie Teo, what does Lunar New Year mean to you? Uh, Well, look, it means a few things because I was brought up in a very traditional Chinese family. But I guess the one thing that really stuck in my mind that it was all about uh, two things, family and finances, believe it or not. So the family issue is that uh, the Chinese believe that well, I've, I've been led to believe that the Chinese believe that if the family are together on uh, New Year's Eve or at the start of New Year, then they'll uh, uh, be together for the rest of the year. And that if you owe money at the start of the uh, Chinese New Year, then you'll owe money for the rest of the year. So you've got to pay up all your debts. You've got to clean up all your problems. You've got to get the family together. Uh, and, uh, and basically, the fresh start of the New Year will then uh, mean that the rest of the year will be a good year. And let's just um, uh, talk about your work. When did you decide you wanted to become a neurosurgeon and why? Was it at school or was it later? No, it was all pure serendipity. I, uh, I didn't like neurosurgery as a medical student. I found it quite daunting. I knew there was a very unforgiving specialty. I didn't think that I would want or could deal with the pressure of neurosurgery. And every time I was confronted with a neurosurgical patient, I would... Uh, uh, deflect, uh, deflect the patient and go on to the next one. And then as I was studying paediatric surgery, because uh, I wanted to become a paediatric surgeon, I was thrust into neurosurgery because the neurosurgical registrar fell ill and I was asked to take up his position and uh, I fell in love with it as soon as I was actually forced to do it. And so when you're known for operating on tumours that are considered inoperable, so when other doctors say something is inoperable and you obviously think it is, what's the reason that either they don't want to do it or they, do you think they're less skilled or you're just more optimistic? <laughs> uh, well, yeah, it's a very loaded question given that you know that I'm, I, have, I lack diplomacy. <laughs> okay, so, uh, so the... Uh, Diplomatic answer is that, uh, uh, you know, uh, six of one, half a dozen of another. We all have a different opinions based on different uh, uh, inputs. Uh, the more elaborate response is that it's probably multifactorial. Uh, I always say to my patients, if you have a Ferrari, you should take it to a Ferrari dealer. 
I mean, why would you go and see a neurosurgeon who does 90% spine and only 10% uh, brain tumours uh, when you've got a brain tumour? I would actually see someone who specialises in brain tumours, so that's one point. Another point is that uh, the term inoperable is just so personal because uh, there's no tumour that's inoperable. Any tumour can be taken out, mm. but, uh, but it may leave the patient dead or it may leave them vegetative or paralysed uh, and uh, the risk profile may be unacceptable to the surgeon. So uh, on, furthermore, the, the quality of life that uh, may occur at the end is maybe unacceptable to the surgeon. So rather than the surgeon saying, listen, I don't think that your quality of life is going to be worth living, I don't think that you should be taking the risk of such high, uh, high risk surgery, they just simply call the tumour inoperable. Mm. Uh, so when they come and see me, you know, I'm a very aggressive sort of person. I have a black belt in karate. I worked as a bouncer when I went through university. Uh, I've always been a pretty aggressive sort of person, and I've approached brain cancer and brain tumors very aggressively. That's my personality. Mm. Uh, my experience is that I do almost 500 brain tumors a year. Uh, the average neurosurgeon, I would say, probably only does one-tenth of that. Uh, uh, the other point is that I have been extremely well trained working in America for 10 years. Uh, the other point is that I have a fantastic team of people around me who I've worked hard to gather around me and, and they contribute as well. And so it's all these things that contribute to the fact that I call it tumor operable and they call it inoperable. Mm. Why do you think you're so aggressive, not just in terms of your approach to surgery, but in terms of your personality? Is it something you uh, enjoy feeling? No, you know, I've never really thought of myself as being aggressive. It just sort of, on reflection, it, it kind of looks that way. I mean, I can remember, uh, I don't know, I just can remember working as a bouncer when I went through university and I, I really enjoyed it because I felt that I was sort of righting some of the wrongs and some of these guys were real bullies and they were sort of obnoxious people and, you know, I thought it was kind of my place to put them in line. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. It was just uh, one of those things. And, you know, just like with uh, uh, the, all the flack I get from my colleagues now, you know, I think it's, I think it's wrong uh, the way they treat me. I think it's wrong the way they, uh, they uh, malign me, yet I've never maligned them. Uh, uh, and, and again, to... To sort of see see the right the right thing done, it sort of makes me feel good if I can take a tumor that someone else has called an operable. It's almost like I'm saying to them, "See, I told you so. You, you, you know, you did the wrong thing. You said the wrong thing. This is the way it should have been treated, and here's the outcome. It's been a great outcome." And you're referring to the way that they say that you're potentially taking too many risks or or that sort of thing. Is that right? Oh no, it's a whole lot worse than that. Mm -hmm. And you have no. Yeah, the, of the politics of medicine. I mean, I don't want to be too negative at a time, but I'm sure you of want me to be positive, but, but it, it's terrible. I mean, it's vexatious. It's uh, almost Machiavellian, the way they've tried to uh, have me deregistered and, and, uh, and my character assassinated, and, uh, and it, goes, it continues. I mean, every day a patient tells me that, you know, well, when we told our doctors we were seeing you, they told us not to, they told us that you were this and you were that and you, mm. and you do the wrong thing by us and 
and the, the maligning goes on and on and on. It's just relentless. Terrible. When, when you're facing something like that, what keeps you going? Well, my, it's my patients that keep me going, you know. I mean, if I had bad outcomes or if the patients didn't appreciate my efforts, I don't think I would have, well, first of all, I wouldn't have survived the climate and uh, I wouldn't be doing what I do. Uh, so, no, it's their amazing courage, their faith in me, their trust in me, uh, the way they put their lives in my uh, in my hands, uh, the way they appreciate, even when there's a bad outcome, they appreciate that I tried my hardest. Uh, no, that's that's what keeps me going. It's the patients that keep me going. Did you always want to be a doctor, like when you were at school? Was there any expectation no. from your family that you were going to do that sort of career? No. In fact, I was kind of, you know, my mum wasn't really a tiger mum in the true traditional sense, but she <laughs> guided me. Uh, uh, so, look, I wanted to be the Prime Minister of Australia. That's what I always wanted to do. I wanted to be a lawyer. I was really good at debating. I was in the first debating team. Uh, I really enjoyed uh a bit of uh, 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 argument and uh, getting my point across. And so my path in my own mind was law, followed by politics, followed by, you know, being the Prime Minister of Australia. Uh, wow. She felt, yeah, I know, she felt that that was not the right career path for me. And uh, I think, I don't know how she managed to get me to do medicine, but she sort of guided me into medicine and, and I must say that I'm so pleased she did because it's one of those vocations that I think it's a great privilege uh, in society to, you know, be able to help people at their worst moments and uh, and to give to give rather than take. I mean, it's a great vocation. I love it. Is there still a part of you that wants to be Prime Minister of Australia? Yes, but I've been told by my uh, very good friends and family and my wife not to ever mention that because people <laughs> think that I'm in... <laughs> who does he think he is he thinks he can be the Prime Minister of Australia <laughs> and, look, and look the fact is I could never be the Prime Minister of Australia I lack total diplomacy um, you know I, I, uh, I speak the truth all the time to a fault uh, I think that's why you know, the public have sort of uh, lauded me and voted me the most trusted Australian I think even if they don't agree with me they like the fact that at least I tell the truth and and uh, I don't pull my punches. I, I'm not diplomatic at all. So, now look, I, I appreciate the, the status the public have given me in Australia, but I don't, I don't think I'd ever be able to be a politician. Well, it would seem that if public opinion is so positive, then it might actually be very possible. But anyway, let's circle back to <laughs> your childhood. Um, you were born in Sydney to Chinese parents. Um, You've mentioned, because you did uh, SBS, Who Do You Think You Are recently, and you mentioned in that that initially you wanted to disown your Chinese history and you said that there wasn't a day that I can remember as a child that I wasn't subjected to racial slurs and racism made me hate being Chinese and at times you'd pray that I'd, you know, wake up and look Caucasian in the morning. I was quite surprised to hear that. Did that stop at some point or did that uh, change at some point? Yeah, no, it's obviously changed at some point because I'm proud of my Chinese heritage now and I, I don't mind looking Asian, if you know what I mean. Mm. Uh, but I don't know when it changed. I It could have been when I went to America. Uh, but no, the quote that you just uh, 
uh, stated then. It's exactly word word for word my exact quote. I was not proud to be Chinese. I I did wake up every morning wanting to look Caucasian because it was just continual uh, mocking and uh, and bullying for for being Chinese in those days. And you know things like you know you'd stop at a uh, you know you'd see some workmen on the side of the road uh, holding up those lollipop signs, and there was no reason to stop you. But you know they looked at you, saw that you were Chinese, uh, put the sign up, and then they continued talking to their buddies while there was nothing going <laughs> going on, and there was no other reason for that for, except for the fact that you know it was, it was all racially motivated, mm. and my, my, the way my mother was treated, you know, told by bureaucrats at a, a long queue to go back to the end of the line because she didn't have a full stop in the right position or something. And you know, that was racially motivated as well. And, wow. and uh, yeah, no, it was terrible. In those days, it was terrible. I mean, I uh, find that, sorry, fascinating and appalling because I'm probably about 13 years behind you, say, at school, which is not that far, but I had a very different experience. Do you think the world changed that much in those 13 years? Oh, absolutely. It's, it's all about uh, a common enemy. You know, societies need a scapegoat. Mm. And I'm sure that the Italians and Greeks would t- give you similar stories uh, when, they, when they were the scapegoat. Uh, the wogs, when the wogs were the scapegoats. Uh, and then the Asians became the scapegoats and then the, uh, the Vietnamese boat people became the scapegoats. But of course, we didn't escape that because we were Consider, you know, my mother, were, people used to look at her thinking she was a Vietnamese boat person until mm. we go back to Vietnam. Mm. Uh, so it lasts a little bit longer for the Asians. And the Asians just look so different, I think. And now, of course, yeah. it's uh, uh, the Muslims. And, uh, you know, there will always be some minority group that, uh, that a society will target yeah. uh, because of fear and uh, ignorance. One of the other things you said was the only time I felt Chinese was when I was working in Singapore and I started to see people who looked like me. And I, that really resonated with me because I had no concept that I looked different until I went to high school and there were boarders, people who were at the boarding school um, from, you know, Malaysia or, some, or China or somewhere, other parts of Asia. And I just went, oh, my goodness, okay. Oh, that's that must be what I look like. Tell me about your experience in Singapore. <laughs> uh, I don't know. I mean, it's not as if Australia has disowned me. I mean, mm, not at all. Uh, I mean, it's the opposite. Not at all. And yeah, and I love Australia. I love Australians. Mm. Uh, but you know, I mean, there's no denying. Well, some people would deny it, I think, but there's no, in my mind, there's no denying that it was an incredibly racist country in those days. Mm. And uh, so, yeah, I always felt that I was different. I never felt that I was part of the fraternity or part of the boys' club or, or part of the masses. Mm. And, you know, when you're young, that's exactly what you want to be. You don't want to stand out in the crowd. You want to be one of the boys and you, you want to be accepted as being like everyone else. Mm. Now, now that I'm older, of course, you do realise that it's great to embrace your individuality and people actually look to be individuals and try and be individuals. But no, when you're young, that's not the situation. So when I went to Singapore, I, I mean, I was already embracing my individuality, but I, but I got that feeling of, gee, I know what it's like now. You can merge imperceptibly into the crowd and you can be sort of totally right. uh, anonymous and 
and in many ways that anonymity gives you some comfort because you know you're not mm. standing out and you're not targeted at all mm. and uh so yeah no no and i mean I, I love the fact that i stand out now i like being an individual but mm. uh when you're young that's exactly it's exactly the opposite yeah you also went to Singapore recently to rediscover your your roots, your you know, uh, discover who your ancestors were, your grand grandfather or great grandfather. Um, you said that the journey taught you a lot about your culture, and you discovered that you were from the Peranakan culture, which is specifically from the Straits Chinese um, area. Mm-hmm. And that was a surprise to you. Is that because you didn't um, – no one taught you about that? Like your, your mother didn't teach you about that or your uh, – I, I understand, your, you know, your father left your family when you were nine. But is that because you, you didn't have an in- inkling or inclination to explore that when you were younger or, 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 you know, even in your adult life? That's exactly the situation. I had no interest. Right. So I'd like to think of myself as one of those people who lives in the moment and looks to the future and uh, mm. doesn't dwell on the past. And if you take that to its extreme, not dwelling on the past means not even looking into your heritage and not even knowing where you've come from. So uh, now that I know what Nonya is all about, and I know what yes. Peranican culture is all about, I recall my grandmother dressing in the typical sarong and batik that the Nonya people dress in, but to mm. me it never meant anything. Uh, the, my mum's cooking. It, it turns out now that it's very, very nonya, very, very uh, Malaysian, Peranakan. But uh, so I know that now. But I never looked into it. I never thought to myself, "Oh, Kuwaitia. I wonder what that, where that arises from, and uh, and it, it, can that give me some idea of where you know I rose from?" But, uh, so no, it was a total lack of interest. Uh, so it's not as if they didn't. Look- didn't know anything or it's not as if I couldn't have Googled it or researched it. I just had no interest. Mm. Apart from um, uh, apart from doing brain surgery, you have also found it started your own foundation. Uh, tell us why and what is the purpose of that foundation? So, uh, well, all the previous foundations that I – uh, set up were my foundations, uh, Cure for Life. I set it up. I started it. It was mine. Uh, Cure Brain Cancer, same thing. It was mine. Uh, but again, to be very honest with you, when a foundation becomes as big as you want it to become big, unfortunately, you have to take the good with the bad. Yep. And the good is that you know, you're raising good money and you're big and you've got recognition and you're the peak body. The bad is that it becomes very corporatized when it gets that big and you need CEOs and CFOs and COOs and, <laughs> and then it becomes quite a cumbersome monolith of, of, uh, of uh, bureaucracy. Okay, so again, my naivety and my ignorance uh, uh, didn't uh, alert me to what that means. And what it means, unfortunately, is that a lot of the money that you raise uh, doesn't go to the cause. It goes to the running of your huge uh, foundation. Uh, and again, through pure ignorance, and I apologize to my supporters for this, and I have apologized publicly, uh, I lost control, uh, a- any sort of control. And I, and I, uh, 
you know, I used to give talks to people saying, please give money because this is a great foundation, it's a great cause, and we run really lean, and our overheads are less than 30% like they ought to be. Mm. One day I walked off the stage, and one of the employees of the foundation said, Charlie, you can't say that anymore. It's not true. Our, our overheads are 65%. Mm. And uh, I go, what? And so he goes, yeah, it's 65%. And it turns out that he was telling the truth. And so I asked things to change and I became a little bit arrogant. And I said, you know, unless they change, I think we need to change the board, uh, get rid of the chairman, get rid of this, get rid of that. It's just not good enough. Anyway, that arrogance led to my downfall because they go, well, you know, F you, Charlie, we're not going to get rid of us. We're going to get rid of you. You can walk if you like. If you don't like the way we're running the foundation, then mm. you need to go. I looked, I thought, I sat back and thought, hang on, you're telling me to leave my own foundation? That's not right. <laughs> so, and, uh, but, you know, that's how big it, it became. So, and then, you know, I, uh, then I thought to myself, well, look, I, I've done my bit. I've raised millions of dollars. Uh, it's taken away my own money as well as my own time with my family. It's taken away a lot of recreation time. It's taken a lot of emotional effort. And I don't want to do it again. So, you know, we had a family conference. Genevieve was very, very supportive of that. In fact, she encouraged me not to do it all over again and spend more time with her and the family. Mm-hmm. And then I went back to work the next day and a patient said, you know, I've met, I had a patient who was dying from brain cancer and I just felt like, I just felt like I had to because, you know, if nothing else, what it gives to patients, it gives them hope that at least if, if we don't have a cure for brain cancer now, that they will, fi- will eventually find one through raising awareness and raising money and doing good research, we'll eventually find a cure. So I don't know, I, th- I think raising money for brain cancer research is just as important as doing a good operation. Uh, to mm-hmm. a patient's welfare. Uh, I really think it's essential. And uh, so, you now unfortunately, uh, fortunately, unfortunately for my family and Genevieve and fortunately for my patients, I started up the, uh, the Charlie Teo Foundation, which I never really wanted to name after myself. But given my terrible experience with the past foundation and past experience, I thought that if I actually put my name to it, then people, then maybe, maybe I'd have, you know, I'd always have a say in how it, how it ran mm. and of course if people want to find out more they can go to charlietofoundation.org.au yeah that's correct it, yeah yeah no go on what can they what can regular people do well i was going to say that it wasn't just the money side of things it was also again through reflection and honesty and, and self uh, uh assessment that you know I hate to say this, but despite raising millions of dollars and putting so much effort and the generosity of so many people into this foundation, my last foundation, uh, I couldn't, with all honesty, say that I had improved the outcome of brain cancer patients. Uh, sure, sure, I'd given hope and I'd funded fantastic research and we'd collaborated with overseas, but really, at the end of the day, people were still dying pretty quickly of brain cancer. So the new foundation is going to do things differently. So not only will it raise money differently, but it's also going to fund differently. And uh, and again, so I had to do some research and I spoke to good people. And uh, it's quite disconcerting to know that of all the greatest uh, advances and discoveries in medicine in the last century, 
most of them have not been from major universities and and uh, established uh, laboratories. They've been from people like Barry Marshall, the Australian who discovered that Helicobacter was the cause of can uh, of peptic ulcers. Uh, you know, these people were brave, disruptive thinkers who weren't uh, who didn't have uh, cred in the scientific world, and they weren't funded by the large foundations. And uh, they were just disruptive, you know, amazing people who came up with these brilliant ideas. So the new foundation, the Charlie Teo Foundation, are going to try and identify those disruptive people and uh, support them. Mm. Uh, people who may not be getting funding because they're not mainstream, if you know what I mean. Mm. You have a very busy life. You do so many things and you show no signs of stopping. What is What other things that get you excited, that give you that feeling inside, that make you really passionate about whatever, whatever it is that you're doing? Uh, without saying too cliche, again, it's, it's my patients. They really mm. drive me. They're, they're amazingly courageous. I don't know. These people are given a death sentence. They're told that there's no cure for brain cancer. They, uh, it takes them out of their normal role. Uh, they're totally, in a, uh, they take, totally taken out of their comfort zone, and yet they don't complain. They just keep forging ahead, and they stay optimistic, and they're, I mean, they even think, you know, it's crazy. I, I've operated on people. I really haven't, I don't know, maybe I've given them a few weeks of extra life, and that's all. And yet they're so thankful and their families are thankful. Mm. And uh, so every day I'm, re I'm reminded of the courage of these people and the optimism of these people. It, uh, I don't know how you couldn't uh, not you know, maintain the passion and, and the drive and the focus of trying to find a cure. It's, it's something that I will never, ever uh, stop doing. Uh, you know, and to my colleagues as well. You know, my colleagues who support me, for example. There's, mm -hmm. you know, I can name them on one hand. <laughs> like it's, uh, it's pretty, it's pretty sad. But there's a neurosurgeon who I trained uh, about eight years ago. A guy called Mike Shugru. Remember the name, S U G H R U E. Mike Shugru. He's going to win the Nobel Prize in Medicine for sure. He's a genius. He's brilliant. Uh, he was working in America and he got disillusioned with the fact that America was so money driven mm. uh, and uh, he wasn't getting the support that he required. So he's come back and joined me in Australia. I mean, uh, you know, how can I ever uh, not support him uh, because he's put his faith in me by, by basically choosing me to come and work with because he believes that I have the same uh, vision as him. Uh, you know, this very altruistic vision that, you know, we're not driven by money, we're not driven by empire building, we're not driven by ego, we're driven purely by our patients and their need to, and our need to help them get through this uh, terrible disease. One of the things that um, you do apart from, uh, I mean, you have an incredible focus where I've you've said that you can do 16 to 20 hour days in uh, in an operation. After that, what do you do to relax? Uh, well, my go-to response to that question, because I've been asked many times, was, you know, spend time with family. Mm-hmm. Uh, What's the real that's response? changed now. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah it's, cha it's changed now. Uh, my girls no longer want a bar of me. Uh, 
I'm sure, I'm sure they still love me, but you know, there's nothing worse than spending the day or having dinner with your dad. Uh, so, uh, you know, I four daughters. Awesome. Mm-hmm. I have four daughters. They're beautiful. I love them dearly, mm-hmm. but you know, I'm no longer the ants' pants, <laughs> and uh, so they find it. You know, I force them to have dinner with me and I force them to do things with me, but it, you can tell that they'd much rather be with their boyfriends, their loved ones, their, uh, their, their you know, girlfriends or boyfriends. And Anyway, so it's no longer that. So what is it? Uh, I guess it's just staying fit now. I just love uh, physical activity. I mean, I love exercising, swimming and riding my motorbike and, you know, just keeping uh, – uh, d- doing things that are completely diametrically opposite to uh, brain surgery. Mm. And finally, with the year of the pig coming up, what are you most looking forward to? You know, I think it's going to be a good year. I, I don't know why I say that, but pigs have always been my favourite animals. <laughs> uh, I just love them to death. I married a pig, in fact. Oh. Uh, yeah, uh, I just love pigs. I love the fact that they're intelligent. Um uh, and I love the fact that the Year of the Pig uh, is all about giving and charity. And uh, I don't know, I just think it's going to be a great year. Fantastic. And on that note, thank you so much for your time today. No, it's a pleasure. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Charlie Teo. You can find out more about his foundation at charlieteofoundation.org.au. Charlie mentioned that his mother used to wear the traditional outfit of the sarong, the sarong kabaya is the traditional dress of the Peranakan culture, which is a culture that developed when Chinese settled in areas like Singapore, Malaysia and Indonesia. While they brought over aspects of their traditions from China, they also developed their own traditions and food and rituals and dress. Most people usually think of the Cheongsam when they think of a traditional women's dress, but the sarong kabaya is very different. The sarong is a long tubular skirt and the kabaya, which is the top, is kind of like a tailored blouse that was first noted as to be worn by women in Indonesia in the 15th century. If you've seen what the female flight attendants wear on Singapore Airlines, that is based on the sarong kabaya. Thanks for listening to New Stories, Bold Legends, stories from Sydney Lunar Festival. My name's Valerie Koo and you can connect with me at valeriekoo.com. That's K-H-O-O. To find out more about the City of Sydney's Sydney Lunar Festival, go to sydneylunarfestival.com. Or to find out more about the people featured in this podcast and to keep up to date with future episodes, go to newstories.net.au.